All right, the, uh, before we start the, the content of today's message, I wanted to just um, remind you, some of you may not know this, but for the last three years, you've allocated a certain portion of your missions fund to our church, our little congregation. We're not so little anymore. We had about 70 people a couple weeks ago, 67, 50, somewhere between 55 and 70 is what our attendance is. But we don't have as many kids as you do, I'll say that much. <laughs> I've never seen so many kids and youth. Man, that's really promising. Um, and we were praying for that. In fact, when I first came four years ago, we had zero kids, none, none whatsoever. And now we have about 12 to 14, so that's a big deal for us. <laughs> but anyway, so you, you, three years in a row, you sent us a, a nice big check saying, hey, we just wanted to invest in your church as a local mission project for us. And uh, every time we got it, we thought, oh, what do we do with this money? This is, like, good. This is, well, we thought about a steakhouse, and we thought about other things. But, you know, we th- no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what elders, good elders do, so... But actually what we did is we, we uh, and we didn't know it was going to come three years in a row, but, we, but it was kind of nice because we have a budget and we have our income and they match. So we're just, you know, we never have money to spend on equipment. So that's what we did with your, your gift. We, we bought equipment for our PA system and our um, projector graphics and all that stuff. And so now we have this very nice, full, uh, professional PA system. We got two, mi- this last gift that came in, we got two more high-quality mics and, a, and two... Uh, Remote speaker, I mean speakers that we can use both for monitors and the for the worship band, but also we can use it for the first time in public settings. We have now a complete PA system uh, with a board and everything. We can go out in the park if we want to, and, and so it gives us a chance to be maybe to be thinking of ways that we can uh, reach out to our community more in, in an evangelistic way. So, but that's it. Please don't send any more because we don't know what to do. We we've, we were maxed out. We got everything we wanted, and our list is checked off. In fact, the biggest thing we got was we got a brand new laptop from you guys with a 32 gigabyte, hard, uh, you know, RAM, so we could run a Pro Presenter, which is really nice. Um, so that's we just feel like it. with our little church, thanks to Crossway, we have you come in and people say, "Wow, this is amazing!" You you know, we didn't expect to have such a nice. Uh, presentation of the the worship and the songs and the and the background videos and all that stuff. So thank you for your kindness and and uh, but think about another church next year. Otherwise I'll feel guilty. It's like no 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 I, I don't know what to do anymore. Anyway, or we will go to a steakhouse. That's the problem. Okay. <laughs> all right. The supremacy of God and missions through worship. So I get to talk about missions through worship. And if you've seen this book by John Piper, it's a it's a classic now. It's, it was written what ten fifteen years ago, and now he's updated it couple of times and and uh, so I was going through the first chapter and what I'm going to do is give you some quotes from it and we'll just talk about what does that mean for us today to take these thoughts that he's brought up from the scriptures to um, to bring us to us today let's see if it works okay yeah there we go what I went too far yeah so I have this wonderful quote missions is not the ultimate goal of the church worship is <coughs> missions exist because worship doesn't worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I used to belong to a church before I came to, to the current one that I'm at, and um, they had uh, one of their sayings was that missions is the reason why the church exists. And I took up that, I took issue with that because I thought, you know, that's not exactly true. That's not the reason we exist. We exist to glorify God and to worship him forever and to enjoy him forever. 
Um, but missions is part of us getting to that point, right? We need missions. We need to share the message or there's no redemption. If there's no redemption, there's no church. If there's no church, there's no eternal state where we'll be in heaven worshiping God forever. So missions is a necessity, but it's only temporary. But it is the ultimate, the ultimate goal of the, church is, uh, of the church is to worship God. So the question I wanted to look at, and this is not in this first chapter, this is just from my own reading and my own experience having lived in the Middle East for eight years or so. <clears throat> that is, what does that word mean, worship? Uh, let me ask someone in high school, tell me, what do you think worship means? Somebody in high school, anybody. Or what, what, what do you picture when you picture worship? Maybe singing, right? Like we do? By the way, that team this morning was amazing. Bo and I, I had no... And last time I was here, you didn't have that big of a team. It was like four or five maybe, and now it's all these young people. But that's the first thing that comes to mind, right? Is, is singing together. These nice songs are beautiful. They honor God. But I want to go back and show you what the actual word is, just so you have a real biblical understanding of that actual word that we translate worship. Because the original context is not referring to song or coming together and singing, although that's part of, it's a legitimate way to worship God. Let me show you what it comes from. Chadad. This is in the Old Testament. There's three, three Hebrew words that are translated worship there. Chadad is to bow down. It's just a physical act. I bow down. Shacha is to bow down, to prostrate oneself before a monarch or superior. In homage, to crouch, to fall down flat on your face, right? To humbly beseech to do reverence and to worship. That's shakha. And then there's another word that's very interesting, nashak, to kiss. Usually it's translated kiss, but sometimes it's translated worship. For instance, we see it in Genesis when Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has shown you all this, there is none so desert. Remember he interpreted the dream for, for Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh said, I want you to be then my vice regent. So he said, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and so wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves. Literally, that's they will kiss. They will throw a kiss to you. They will show you their honor by kissing their hand and, putting, and giving you that, that signal at your, as your command, as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. We see it again in First Kings. Uh, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is... God telling Elijah. Elijah was saying, God, all the prophets are gone. There's only me left. He says, no, 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 no. I have 3,000 men who have not, or what is it? 7,000 men who have, who have not kissed Baal. Think about how significant that was. That means that if they had kissed Baal, they would no longer belong to Yahweh, Jehovah God. And you may ask yourself, well, how could it possibly a kiss mean that much that it could determine your eternal state? whether you kiss this person or this object or not. Well, we'll read on. Psalm 2. This is a really interesting psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. Um, I'll just read it to you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, right? The king. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us take their chains away from us, right? Cast their cords from us. Well, God... He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, his son, Jesus Christ, on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree that the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is what Jesus says concerning his decree of, to become king. 
And God, God the Father says to him, Ask of me and I will give the nations or make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is Jesus as the judge, the king who will reign over all the kingdoms and he will r- rule with a rod of iron. And then he makes this conclusion. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Don't serve idols. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then he makes a statement, kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so what kind of a kiss is he talking about here? Why? It, this is very important. He says, if you kiss the son, then you'll be taking refuge in him and he will be your king. If you don't, then you are, you are committing rebellion against him. You're declaring your independence of him. You're saying, I don't want you to be my king. I'm not going to kiss your feet. Because this is not a kiss of the cheek, right? This is not, as we say in Spanish, a little besito. Go over and give him a little kiss. Come on, he's so cute. No, this is the monarch who sits on his throne and you walk up and you prostrate yourself and you kiss his foot, his feet. That's when you're showing obeisance. That's when you're showing reverence. That's when you're saying, you are my king. So do we see this in the New Testament? This is really interesting. I, I showed you those three words in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we just have one word that is translated worship. And it's proskineo. Proskineo. comes from two words. Pros is towards or in front of. And kineo is to kiss. Look at that. So both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you have the word kiss that is wrapped up in worship. Properly to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. To worship ready to fall down, prostrate oneself, to adore one's, uh, on one's knees, to do obeisance. The basic meaning is, in the opinion of most scholars, is to kiss on Egyptian reliefs. The worshipers are represented with outstretched hand, throwing a kiss to the deity. And then in Thayer's Greek lexicon, he says that properly to kiss the hand toward uh, of one in token of reverence. Herodotus, the historian, the Greek historian, says among the Orientals, especially the Persians, it meant to fall down upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence to make what is called a salam. Hence, in the New Testament, by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication, it is used of homage shown to men of superior rank. You're always giving a kiss to the superior one. He does not kiss you. Okay, so Jimmy, come here for a second. I want to show something. He's my volunteer today. He doesn't know I was going to ask him this. But okay, in Turkey, just stand right there. In Turkey, if I was the host in my, in my um, home, whoops, I don't want to, um, and I invited my friend to come over, I would open the door, and the first thing I would do is, merhaba, I would say, merhaba. I would greet, take your hand, come close to me, and I'm going to, no, no, come on this side, and I would go, Mwah. Like that. I, would, I don't actually kiss him, but I touch... Whoops, my mic is falling off here for a second. I would not actually kiss your cheek, but I would touch cheeks both sides, which is considered a kiss. And then you would sit down. Okay, go ahead, sit down. And then I would... After that, I would do two things. I would bring him... Uh, or either I or my youngest daughter. Usually it's the, it's the female, uh, youngest female in the family. Would bring my guest, who's my friend. I want to honor him with that kiss. She would bring him um, oil to put on your head and then... Um, sandals for your feet so that you can because the you know it's like Asian households when you don't wear your shoes Tur- Turkey is just like that so you take your 
your shoes off and the person provides you with slippers and you wear the slippers, you sit down and then you get uh, some oil and the, the cologne that they put on your hands like this and you pour it over your head and you have this wonderful smell of, of lemon or some kind of you know, cologne. Okay, so what happens when we see this in the New Testament, we see something so similar. Uh, one of the biggest privileges that I had as a missionary is that I got to live in a country that is biblical in culture, even if they're not biblical in, in, in faith, right? The Muslim Turks are not, are not Christians. There's only maybe one-tenth of one percent of the country is believers. But the people still act like they did back in the time of Jesus and the people, because they live in the Middle East. They, they still have all these traditions. And so just like I showed you, watch what happens in the, in the New Testament when we read about, about uh, an event where Jesus comes to Simon the Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee. Going into the house, they... I'm sorry, uh, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. Remember the woman was the, uh, had been a prostitute or whatever. She was forgiven and she came in. And what did she do? She kissed his feet and she poured out cologne and she wiped her, his, his feet with her hair. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no, no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Oh, is that that important to Jesus that we give him a kiss? But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Remember when she broke the alabaster vial, it was a pound of perfume. This is not cologne made with alcohol. It's cologne made with oil. It's perfume made with oil. So it was worth 200 days wage. What would that be? If you make $40,000, that'd be $30,000. $30,000 worth of, worth of perfume. Gone. Because she loved him so much that she wanted to give all her savings in that one special vial and put it on him. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, like you, Simon, loves little. Isn't that incredible? She was worshiping him the way she treated him. And just like that man who wanted to honor me, he would kiss me. He would make sure I had something for my feet and and oil for my head. That still is an echo of this past event here in Simon's house. And what's interesting is in Turkey, if you really want to snub someone, I, w- I remember watching a TV show, they, were, you know, they have their, their sitcoms like we do here, and this man was opening the door, and all his relatives were there, and he kissed each one, kissed each one, and then the last man there, he just shook his hand, and then they came in. And then everyone knows, oh my gosh, that was a, a put-down on that man. He didn't, and, and he didn't have to say a thing, he just didn't give him the kiss, because that's what he was saying, you are not important to me. And that's what Simon was doing with Jesus. Simon saw Jesus as an equal and so it's like, I don't have to kiss him. He's just another, he's just a rabbi. Look, I'm a Pharisee. He's a rabbi. But the woman saw who he really was. And that's why worship, with is, it has to be out of deep reverence. Let me show you one more example. In Matthew 22, verse 11, the Magi, these Medes, these Medi- uh, Zoroastrian Medes came all the way to Bethlehem, took a five-month journey, and they took all this, this wealth from their people to make a, what do you call it, a, an alliance with this new king. Because they saw either the comet or something, they knew this king is the king of kings and we're going we're gonna to get on his good side because he's going to reign o- forever. I don't know if you realize that. They had the access to the book of Daniel f- about 500 years before Jesus was born. And in the book of Daniel, it says that there will be four great kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian kingdom, then the Greek kingdom, Alexander the Great, finally the Romans, and at that time, this star would fall from, this rock would fall from heaven. And when the rock fell, like that's why I think it was a comet because it looks just like a rock falling from heaven. They knew that's it. This is the king that's going to take over the world. So it come, they, come, they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
And if you look at the Greek, it's they fell down and kissed him. It doesn't even say worship. It's that word proskuneo. So here he is, about 12 to 14 months old, maybe 15, 16 months old. He's a little, to- little toddler. And he's standing there looking at this man bringing gold and so all these things. And then he was probably very interested, just watching them. And they came down and they knelt down. And his little feet, he might have been barefoot, and they went down and kissed his feet to show. And they, I'm sure they told Mary and Joseph, when he, when he gets older, you tell him that the Magi, the Manji tribe came and aligned ourselves with him. Help him remember us later on. And he did. Because on the day of Pentecost, guess who was there to receive the Holy Spirit? It says people, residents from Mesopotamia and the Medes were there. The same people group. Okay, so let's go on. How do we show our allegiance? Baptism is our declaration of allegiance. This is our way today as Christians to show that we belong to God, that we, that we give everything to Him. Paul says, when we were baptized, we were buried with Christ and shared His death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the wonderful power of the Father, so also can we also can live a new life. So what is that saying? That's saying that when you get baptized, you're completely... You're giving and donating everything you have, just like those magi, giving their gifts. You're saying, this, from this point on, I belong to this man here. I'm taking on his, you know, like, a, like one of you might wear a wedding ring to show the world that you're already married. I belong to someone, right? And so when you get baptized, you're showing, telling the world, I belong to Christ. I'm now his. Everything I have is at his disposal. My time, my resources, my, my goals, my career, everything belongs to him. The problem is we have another group of people today that also have an allegiance. It's the allegiance to ISIS. They have what they call a bayah, the Arabic word for a pledge of allegiance. Maybe you've heard of that. But someone gave up, the people that the massacre in San Bernardino, when this couple came in, they took a pledge of allegiance to Baghdadi right before, and they put it on Facebook, and then they came in there with their, with their semi-automatic weapons and started killing people in the, uh, in the regional center. You know what they say? The bayah or pledge. Here's what they say. I give my allegiance. This is their bayah. I give my allegiance to hear and obey in times of difficulty and comfort, in hardship and ease, to endure. This, they're, they're saying, I give my allegiance to Mr. Baghdadi, right? To, I can't remember his first name. Baghdadi is the so-called caliph of ISIS. To hear and obey him in times of difficulty and comfort, in hardship and ease, and to endure being discriminated against, and not to dispute about rule with those in power, Right? They're complete submission. They're saying, I give in to you. you. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. The only exception is in the case of evident infidelity regarding that which there is proof from God. If, if Baghdadi should disobey Allah, well then, okay, then they're free. But other than that, they have to obey him even to death. And I don't know if you've kept up with the, with the uh, you know, war in Iraq, but there was a, I saw an interview or a newscast about a general. I don't know if he was British or if he was American, but they were coming into Mosul, the big city of Mosul, and they, were, they, they had a section of Mosul left to get all the ISIS terrorists out of there. And the man said, he said, I have been in battles for 20 years, and I have never, ever encountered what I do here. You, they, these men will not come out with a white flag. You have to go into every last household and fight them to the death. And why? Okay, it's because they took a pledge. They made an oath. They will follow Baghdadi to their death. No problem. That's why you have suicide, you know, a, a whole string of suicide bombers. It's no problem. We'll give up my, our lives. If they had that kind of commitment for ISIS, do you see the problem? If the church doesn't have the same for our Lord, then it really is a, 
a, a, a tug of war out there because they have more commitment with their false theology than we do with the truth and with the one who is the truth. So we ask that question, do we, or John uh, Piper asked that question, do we have a zeal for missions? Where he makes this wonderful, wonderful comment here. Uh, where passion for God is weak, then zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare his glory among the nations. Even outsiders, that is, non-believers, they can feel the disparity between the boldness of our claim upon the nations and the blandness of our engagement with God. Isn't that incredible? So I have just a really simple little practical thing that I want to ask you to think about or try it out. Anyone here ever use BibleGateway.com? You know, on the, on the online? Okay. If you go into Bible Gateway, it might be available in other, there's a lot of apps out there, you know, but in, I use Bible Gateway. In there, if you find your passage, let's say it's Job chapter 1, and you can click on the loudspeaker, right? You can choose your English or your Korean or whatever you want. But anyway, in English, they have all kinds of versions, right? Well, I, I just pick whatever English version, and I see Job 1, and then you can click on this little loudspeaker icon on the upper right to hear it in audio, Okay. Well, when you click on the audio, then it comes up with about 10 or 12 different audio, maybe it's 15 different English audio readers that will read the drama, you know, the, the Job chapter 1 for you. And I've listened to different ones, and I found one that was just incredible. It's called NIV by Dramatized. NIV by Dramatized. And what it is is they, they, they spent, I don't know how many hours and how much money, but they got an actor for every character in the dialogue, in the, in the narrative. Like, for instance, in Job 1, they have, I think, five or six, no, maybe nine actors. They have the voice for God. They have the voice for the narrator. They have the voice for Satan because he has a conversation, remember, with Satan. They have the voice for Job. And they have the voice for the, the, the messengers who come in and say, Job, I just, I, I, I just saw the, you know, the um, wind of God came and, and uh, uh, the house fell down on all your children. And I, I alone escaped to tell you. you know, each servant has a different voice. And so you hear it with this music and with this drama. And it's like, it's absolutely captivating because you hear a story that God had written for us without changing anything there. They just read it the way it is, but they have the actors for it and the music to go with it. It's so beautiful. My point is that you will make, maybe for the first time, because for my wife and I, we, it's the first time we've ever made such an emotional connection to the Word of God. And so now every morning, my wife is, uh, you know, she works as a director of a foster family agency, just like Olive Crest. She has another one that she works for over there in the, the, in the San Fernando Valley. And so she works 50, 55 hours a week, and she has an hour commute each way. So she doesn't have much time to read the Bible. But I figured out, Karen needs 20 minutes to put on her makeup. That's the time. So I said, Karen, I'll, I'll tell you what. I've got these little nice little loudspeakers here. We'll close our door, and at 5.45 after her shower, I, I put on the next chapter of whatever book we're going through by NIV by Dramatized. And we're just like... Wow, and she's putting on her makeup and going, now how did that happen? You know, she'll ask me these questions, then we read the commentaries and stuff like that, and then we finally have breakfast. But she gets it every single day, and we have gone through the book of Genesis, we've gone through, I mean, probably half the Old Testament and, and much of the New Testament, because we've done it now for several years. I just want to recommend, just listen to it, and you will see how much emotional response you'll have, especially if it's a historical narrative, like the book of Ruth or Esther or any, you know, any of the history books. First Samuel is fantastic to hear David's voice and how he deals with Saul and all these things, you know, it's just, and Job, I, Job 1 is all, you, just take Job 1 and you'll be hooked. You'll want to read the rest of the book because it's so good. Just an idea, okay? If you, do, if you do end up trying it and you like it, then please email me. Let me know. I want to hear it. So, okay. Okay, missions is also bringing joy to the nations, right? 
Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands or coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So, okay, I'm one of four elders now at, at Gateway. By the way, Wade Harlan, something got in his mind to, to leave this church and to come to our church and to serve now as an elder. Now, I'm not saying I never invited him. I never, I was just, <laughs> I was just, you know, he said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe coming to your church. I thought, okay, Lord, please send him, send him, send him, send him, send him. So I've never said a word to him, but he said, ah, we made our conclusion, we're going to come. So I said, okay, then we're going to make our conclusion, we're going to make you an elder right away. So he's, he's one of our pastors and he preaches, you know how good he is as a preacher, but he's a wonderful blessing. Well, anyway, our, our motto at our church is to be an authentic reflection, or we're aspiring to become an authentic reflection of the early church. And one of the requirements we have is to be happy. If we're not happy, something's wrong, you know? And so, like, you guys have food every week. We're not quite up there with you guys. We have it about once a month or once every six weeks. But maybe we'll get there. Maybe by next year we'll have it every single Sunday. But anyway, um, we're, we're trying to add more meals together. We, we set aside funds just for food, and then we try to make these outings. Like, we went up to the mountains when it was snow a couple weeks ago, and we uh, try to do just social time so we can get together and enjoy the company of the saints. It's so wonderful. It should be. Like, on Sunday morning, you wake up and say, oh, I can hardly go. I, I hardly wait to go to church because I get to see so-and-so and so-and-so, and we get to be together and then hear the word. And so that's, for us, it's, you know, we, we see that this whole, this whole concept of being glad or enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, that there should be something that we anticipate when we get to come together, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Monday night when we have our Bible studies and things like that. We have a, a lady, she's 79 years old. Lupe Banuelos, and we're mostly Latino in our church, so it's a different flavor than here. Maybe uh, like when you guys come and go, do you, do you hug here or you just kind of shake hands or whatever? Well, you, a little bit of hug. But they hug and kiss all the time. I mean, they're just all over the place. And so Lupe said, Chris, I want to make breakfast for the church. I said, Lupe, we're 50 people. You can't make breakfast. Oh, no, I can. So she wanted to make huevos rancheros for all of us. So she had stacks and stacks of eggs, you know, and she bought everything there. For Father's Day, we had Lupe's breakfast, and so we started a, a new tradition with her. But we, the, the ladies have helped her now. They, they bring other casseroles and stuff like that. But we have a wonderful breakfast, and it's just such a joy to honor people that otherwise wouldn't have any role in leadership at the church. But we call it Lupe's breakfast because she is the one who thought that up, and she wants to use her hospitality gift, and uh, so we're really glad. That's the kind of thing we like to do. But anyway, there should be joy. Psalm 16 uh, at the end. I don't know if I have it here. I don't think so. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. And we have the next one. I want to keep going because I don't want to be too late. I have till when is it? About 11.25 or what? 11.30? Okay, right there. All right. That, that's good. I can see exactly where we're at. Zeal for God's glory. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So what's the point here? God wants to receive glory because he is rightfully the one to receive glory. He doesn't do it in a selfish way. He does it in a right way, right? He's God. And, he wa- and one of the ways he does that, remember how there's that parable Jesus told about the king who invited all the people to, to a meal to, because his, I think his son was going to get married or whatever. And they, had the, the, and they went out and said, it's all ready, and then no one came. And he was so mad. He said, my, my house must be filled with people. So go to the... To the, you know, to the streets and get all the people that were you know, lame and blind and whatever and bring them into my house because it's got to be filled. 
God wants heaven to be filled with people from every nation on earth, every tribe, every language, okay? So this is, this is the, you don't know what this means to me. I get 15 minutes now, 15 or 20 minutes, to explain something that I have always wanted to explain. I've never had the opportunity until today to an Asian audience, because I've never had an Asian audience. <laughs> so today I get to do this. I'm so excited. What am I going to do? This is what I call my postlude, okay? Um, let's see. It's the next slide, I think. It's God's special choice of East Asia. Are the Chinese, the Koreans, or the Japanese, or Thai, are they mentioned in the Bible? What do you think? Okay, I want to take you through something, and I want you to pay attention because you, I want you to take this information with you and study it some more on your own if you want to, and then share it with your... <coughs> non-believing relatives, because I'm going to show you where you came from. First of all, in this picture here, oh, can we turn down the lights? Yeah. Uh, this is from NASA, right? Do you understand? Does anyone know where that is? What part of the world are we looking at there? Okay, here's my little red thing. Can you see over there? Or should I show it here, maybe? Here's uh, Mediterranean down here. This is the island of Cyprus. This is the country of Turkey right here. This is the Black Sea here, and this is the Caspian Sea, and this down here is the Persian Gulf. And these here, you see right here this little line of darkness, that's the Euphrates River, and the Tigris goes over right here like that, and that area there is called Mesopotamia. Between, Mesopotamia means between the rivers, right? Meso, between Mediterranean, what does Mediterranean mean? The middle of the earth, right? Terra, the earth, and, and uh, Mede in the middle. Okay, so when we look at this, this region here, and that, you see that little blue fleck there? That's the Lake Vaughan. And north of Lake Vaughan, about, uh, about 100 miles, this is where I live, right? I live right in Dyarbakir, right near the, uh, the beginning of Mesopotamia where there's flat land. There's beautiful, uh, amazing agriculture there, 700,000 hectares of irrigated land. And uh, Turkey has become like the, the produce uh, exporter of, of all of Europe. I mean, they give the best produce into Europe from this region here. Well, anyway... So if you look up at that, right north of this little, um, this little Lake Van is right about here is Mount Ararat. And at the, mount, and the foothills of Mount Ararat, they have found you know, evidences of the ark and so forth. But it's from this region of the world where all the peoples migrated from, according to G Genesis 10, right? Uh, Moses says, Noah and his wife had three sons, and from those three sons came all the peoples of the earth. What are they? They're the sons Noah, she uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And what I want to show you before, I, I'll go read the uh, text in a little bit, but I want to show you first that most of the, uh, where's my little thing? Okay, most of the uh, descendants, the descendants of, of uh, Japheth, this guy here, they went this, tra they tra traveled this direction toward India or Iran, and then finally India. And they came up this direction across, they crossed the Marmara Sea and went into Europe this way. Greece is down here. And they came all the way up to Ireland, right? So that's why you have the Indo-European, Indo-European languages. Okay, so the Kurds belong to that group. Kurds are from the, the son of, uh, one of the seven sons of, of uh, Japheth called Madai. Madai was the father of the Medes, the same root, Madai, Mad Medes, so forth. But when it comes to the Asian peoples, this is really interesting. Okay, so Ham had... Here's Noah and his wife. We have the, what is called the most recent common ancestor. 
some of you um, who, who are into um, DNA studies and stuff like that, this might interest you. According to um, Darwin, uh, we came, you know, over millions of years, we came, we started, we originated in Africa from the chimpanzee or whatever, the ape, and then we slowly migrated into the Middle East and then to the different parts of the world. But according to Genesis, it was not mil millions of years ago, it was just 5,000 years ago that we came from Anatolia, that part that I just showed you, the eastern Turkey. Oh, let me go back there and show you one more thing. Okay, so the, the children of Ham, well, I, I will show you this first. So Noah, here's his three children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives. And then Canaan is the son, I'm losing my thing again. Canaan was one of the sons of, um, of Ham, and Canaan had a huge family. So these would be, Canaan is the grandson of Noah, and these are the great-grandsons of Noah, okay, and from the Canaan's line. They're called Sidon, Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, and it goes on. There's still two or three more, okay? It's a lot of kids that he had. These are just his sons. So he must have had 20 kids or so if he had daughters too. Okay, now here's the important thing. In Hebrew, as you see up here, these words, whoops, uh, my little, okay, we're right, where am I? Right here. This first word goes to the Hivites right here. It says hahivi. It goes from right to left in Hebrew. This little H is the means and, and the Hiv, H-I-V, is the, the, the name of the, that descendant, Hiv. His name was Hiv. And then his descendants would be the Hivi, which means the, the Hivites, okay? Ha-Arki and the Arkites, because the E at the end means the plural of Ark. So, and then it says Hasini, okay? So this third one here is H-S-I-N, and then I. So Sin was a man who was the great-grandson of Noah, and he had, he was referred to as the Sinites, um, and he was in this list of names. Okay, now, maybe you, you remember the thing where Moses said, you're going to go to the land of Canaan, and you will take over the nations of, and he mentions these, the Hittites, Heth became the father of the Hittites, right? Same root. Then Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and he goes on with this list, but the amazing thing is, whenever you see the list of the seven or eight or nine nations of Canaan, he never once mentions the Sinites. It's like, what happened to the Sinites? He's the only one that's missing. Everyone else, you can see over, you see Sidon, there's a city named Sidon. It still is there today, to this day. Sidonians say their city is 5,000 years old because it started with the grandson of, or great-grandson of Noah. Heth, the Hittites were in Turkey, we know that, and the Jebusites were in Jerusalem. They, when David took Jerusalem, he took it from the Jebusites and so forth, the Amorites. All these things you see, but the Sinites, they disappeared. Okay, so what happened? This is what happened. Back to this little map here. Well, I've got to learn how to use this right here. My little red thing. Okay, so I mentioned this is Euphrates, this is the Tigris. Most of the people from the sons of Ham went this way. They went down. They became the Philistines, and they became all these nations in Canaan, and then they went all the way down to Africa here, right? So you have the Af Afro-Asiatic peoples there, but then you had one group called the Sinites, and they went this way. They went towards Georgia, Armenia, and they ended up going into Central Asia around the north side of the Caspian Sea. And they went all the way to, guess where? A land called Sinai. They were always named Sin. Not like Sin, but Sin. Sin no. Ptolemy lived in 1406, right? Ptolemy has a map there. 1406. What did he do? He called the farthest place where the Sinites went. 
he called it the land of Sinai. Right there, S-I-N-A-E. Later on, it became Chinna, right? So Sinna is the original name. Chinna was later, and we still use Sino, to, you know, the Sino-Tibetan relations are not good today, or Sino, uh, you have Sinology, you have the study of the, of the, Sine, the Chinese culture, the, the, the history there. So that, that group, that man, Sin, and his people were the one group of Canaanites that went to the northeast. Everyone else went southwest. And then we, we think, well, whatever happened to them? Are they ever mentioned again in Scripture? And this is the thing that's so fascinating. We have those three letters, Samech, Yod, Nun. These are the Hebrew letters that are, make up his ma- name, S-I-N. But there's two S's. There's, there's Shin and there's Samech. But the, words, the letter Samech was used again in Isaiah 49. And we see this same exact name. So let's see what happens. Um, I'll leave it here on the map. In Isaiah 49, um, it says this. This is a chapter that I'd like you to take home and look at the whole chapter. It's basically God telling Isaiah, you know what, the day is going to come where I'm going to gather my people from the farthest places of the earth. He said, in a time of favor, I have answered you. I will keep you and give you a covenant of the peoples to establish the land. In fact, he says, it is too light a thing, Isaiah, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, right, Israel, the Israelis, the Jewish people, and to bring back the princes of the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God was interested in bringing salvation to the very edges of the earth, even beyond what, what Isaiah would have known. Isaiah lived in a time 600 years before Christ, and he would not know. Was it more than that? I'm sorry, maybe 800 years. He lived uh, seven, or 700 years before Christ, and he did not know how far Central Asia went. He just knew that the people that were past uh, Ararat were called the Sinites. But after that, it's like well, how far they went and what the geography, they didn't have satellite uh, data and all that stuff. But this is what God says. Um, behold, I will gather them from afar. And behold, these people I will gather from the north, the sons of Japheth, Europe. I'm going to get the people from the north and I'm going to get from the west, the ones in Africa, right? From Libya, from Egypt, from Cyrene and so forth, all the way to Algeria and Ethiopia. And then these from the land of Siam. Now, in NIV or ESV, it's spelled S-Y-E-N-E. I don't know if I have it here. In the, oh, no, I, I don't have it listed here. Okay. Anyway, but they spell it uh, sometimes e, uh, S-Y-E, like Cyan, S-Y-E-N-E. But some say Sinim, which is more accurate, S-I-N-I-M. That's exactly the Hebrew letters, but it should be translated the land of the Sinim. So if I go back to this uh, Hebrew word, whoops, right there. See the last word, Sinim, land of the Sinites. It's the same root as uh, the, the second, third, fourth letter of the one above, Sin. This one goes Sinim, and it ends with that Mem, that, that rounded letter, which is the land of. So it's the land of the Sinites. So what is going on here? Okay, now this is the, the part that's so fascinating. I got permission from a woman, a photographer in Paris. She's a Russian w- young lady, and she's doing a project called, her name is Natalia Ivanova, the origin de la beauté, the origins of beauty. And so what she did was she started this project of photographing and taking a portrait of beautiful women, but they had to be between 18 and 30, and they had to come from a tribe in the world where they know that at least four generations back, they were in the same tribe. And then she took their photo at exactly the same centimeters, so their eyes and their face are always the same, and she wants to show the world that there's beauty in every culture. 
Well, I got permission and I told him, look, I'm interested in this because I want to show where the migration of Noah's descendants went. Do you mind if I use your photographs? And she said, no, you can have them. I'm going to give it to me on high resolution. So she sent them to me. She got me the code so I could go into her website and pull off all these 120 beautiful photos of these ladies from all over the world. They happened to be in Paris and that's where she took their photographs. So, and you can see, she's trying to show that the darker, the lighter it is, that they all came from, they're all beautiful. That's all she cared about. And I'm showing them, you know, not only are these women, is there beauty in every culture, but there's also a family relationship because we all started from the same parents, right? Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that the MRCA, MRCA, the most recent common ancestor would be Noah's wife. We don't know her name, so let's call her Naomi. <laughs> Naomi, uh, according to, uh, this is MIT. Douglas Rowe at MIT said, you know what? We have done two studies based on the DNA and we can tell how long ago our most common recent ancestor lived. She lived 5,000 years ago. That's what he said. So he agrees with Genesis 2. He would not say that, but that's what he came up with with his computer model based on the DNA that they had. So, um, so here we have, uh, this is what Darwin said. Our mother came from Africa. But you look at this woman, and she, it'd be hard to see a Chinese person in her or a British person coming from her, right? She's, of course, very beautiful. She's from Rwanda, I think. Um, here's a British woman. Could she be the mother of all the living? I don't think so. I cannot imagine a Chinese woman coming from her features, nor can I imagine an African. How about a Chinese woman? Well, I can't see that going from that mother all the way to Britain or to Africa either. That's hard. But here, now let me show you a picture of a woman whose DNA comes from the mountain, the foothills of Mount Ararat. This is where she was born and raised, right near where the ark was. This is what she looks like. This woman could be the mother of every living tribe on earth. She has all the central features of all the continents right in her. And I'll show you how it happens, okay? Let's go from her, we'll go from, this is a, a woman She's actually Armenian. Um, when, I did, when I was giving this talk to Glendale College, I didn't mention who, where she was from because they would all get stuck up because they're all Armenian there. So I didn't <laughs> want to... I just said, she's just from Mount Ararat, but don't ask me what nationality. So I was afraid they'd get all, you know, like, oh, we're always... We knew we were the center of the, you know, that whole thing. Okay, so anyway, let's go to, from there to Arabia, uh, Arabia. And then maybe Yemen. And then maybe Ethiopia. Notice the hair. It's wavy, it gets more curly, and then finally we end up in Nigeria or the Western Africa. It starts from the Middle East and it goes down that way. See? Now let's go past Africa and we'll take it again and we'll go from this woman towards Europe. If we go west, in Western Turkey, look what she looks like. If we go to Romania, this is what she looks like. If we go to Spain, no, not Spain. Uh, France, here she is. Germany. England. Do you see that? It's a slow progression. It's not that someone is just born with lighter skin or whatever. It was a slow migration from the Middle East, from the mountains of Ararat, all the way to, um, all the, way to the Middle East. There she is, okay. All right, so let's one, now what, the last one is for you guys here. We're going to start with Armenia, <laughs> and I'm going to go towards Georgia, and then Azerbaijan, Georgia, and some of the um, countries in Central Asia, like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzia, and I'm going to end up in China, going through um, 
going through Korea. Okay, now what, what nationality would you, what, what would you say? Was she Asian? Is she European? Is she, wow, interesting, huh? This is what they call ethnic amb ambiguous, amb ethnically ambiguous. Look at her. Whoops. <laughs> wow, what was that? I spoke, sorry about that. Okay. She's from che Chechnya, I think. Look at her from Kazakhstan. She's from, I think she's a Uyghur, maybe, from Mongolia, and here she is Korean, and here she is China. Let's go back. Look at that. Look at her eyes change, her eyebrows and her, and her cheekbones, and finally she's at the very eastern part of Asia, right? If you look at the languages, it's the same thing. I was in Turkey, so the word for, su, for water is su, right? The word for water in Chinese is sue, shue. The word for water in Japanese is misu, right? In Korean, they use su, and some of the, they, I guess, have two words for water, but one of them is su. In Turkey, we ate man, man te. In Korea, they eat mandu, right? That's delicious. It's the same, same dish. And uh, in Turkey, we say, uh, you don't have the word have, so if I say I have a car, I have to say my car exists or it doesn't exist. And that's like in Korean too. There's all these things. In Chinese, you say ni hao ma. The ma is a sign of the question, right? If I say in Turkish, I say sen suvar uh, ma. Uh, the ma means it's a question. Same thing. So there's all this linguistic and ethnic and DNA relationship, and even the, you, you see it in the faces here. So if I show the next picture here, are all these women starting from the late Armenian woman right near Mount Ararat and seeing how they change as they go to Africa, as they go to India, as they go up to, to the Central Asian thing, and there we have it. Here's what he says. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Siam. The Lord knew about all the Asian peoples, even in the time of Isaiah. And he says, I'm going to gather them from the farthest places of the earth. And by the way, that includes all the Eskimos and all the Amaranth peoples, right? All the, uh, from, from Alaska all the way down to the tip of South America. These are also related to the Mongolian stock. They're all the same people. If you look at the little birthmarks of, the, they have this little birthmark that 20% of the babies are born in China. They have the same birthmark in, in Mexico too. All these things, that, their language. I saw one time an interview with, uh, what was it? Uh, he was uh, uh, the Indian that the, the, they reached, the missionaries were reaching, the Az not Aztec, they were um, very violent Indians there in the Amazon. Uh, anyway, but they were speaking and they had the same grammatical structure as I learned in Turkish um, because that's, that they're all related languages. So with that in mind, my prayer is that you would Take, this, take the time to look at these passages. Look at Isaiah 49. Make that your special uh, passage where, where you see the heart of God was not only for the Europeans. Like he, he clearly talked about the Ethiopian eunuch that came, that Philip met and, and, he, and baptized him. And that Ethiopian eunuch went back and started the church there in Africa. But when, when they talk about an Ethiopian or an Egyptian, that's only the first group of people in Africa that covers all of Africa. After that, the gospel will go all the way through. So when he talks about the Sinites, he's just starting with the first group. They're north, northeast of, of Ararat by the Caspian Sea. And then from there on, it goes through all of Central Asia and all of East Asia. 
Filipinos are also part of that group, and Indonesians, and all the, the Vietnamese and so forth. And um, so I just was so, so thrilled that I could see God's desire to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, including China and all the way into the Amaran peoples, and, uh, and show that we are one family in, in Christ. In, I mean, first of all, we're a family, a human family, and then we're also in Christ. We, that we are become part of this glorious uh, community of faithful in heaven. Uh, before I close in prayer, does anyone have a question about what I've been showing or any thoughts that you have? I remember this too. When I taught in Glendale, all my Asian students were quiet and all my Armenians said, well, I disagree. And, you know, they wouldn't talk. <laughs> so you guys are so polite. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we've had time to look at your word and see uh, your heart for the nations and, and to realize, Lord, we can... We can see way back then, 2,600, 700 years ago, that you were interested and you knew about the people that you would gather from the land of Siam to bring back all the way into your fold and into your community and into your congregation. Lord, what a privilege to be your children and to be among the first to tell our relatives about you. So I pray that, Lord, this church would grow as a result of them sharing their faith with their cousins and their moms and dads and their, their children and their uh, maybe relatives back in Asia. Um, and uh, the, Lord, we would hear about many people coming to faith because of your promise that you would include these people in your family. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.